Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program providing a gender analysis of contemporary issues from Australia and internationally. I'm Giselle Hanna. In Melbourne, Australia, a socialist organisation called Socialist Alternative organises an annual Marxism conference over the Easter long weekend. This year, they invited special guest Hayley Pesson from the International Socialist Organisation and the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. She gave a keynote address at the conference, which I recorded and broadcast for you now. I figure you've heard enough about Trump um, <laughs> throughout probably this entire conference, but unfortunately I think it would be impossible not to start with the current moment and talking about the question of racism in the U.S., so you'll have to bear with me and hear a bit more about what that means under Trump. Um, so obviously we're talking about an individual who ran a campaign of open racism, misogyny, and bigotry toward immigrants, Muslims, women, and people with disabilities, and whose key policy pillars included building a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border to keep out so-called criminals and rapists, and, insulting, uh, and instituting a ban on all Muslims entering the country. When asked during the election debates what he would do to address the country's, quote, racial divide, Trump responded by touting his endorsement from the Fraternal Order of Police and declared the need for a return to law and order as the solution to unchecked crime and violence in the nation's inner cities. That term, law and order, has long been a shorthand for laws and policies that were enacted as part of the backlash against the gains of the 1960s civil rights, black power, and other social struggles accompanied by a ramped up policing in poor and black communities. And in the context of two and a half years of massive protests against police killings of black people, Trump's comments amount to the most callous victim blaming and a sign that he'll seek to further crack down on the efforts of anti-racist activists to resist the failure of the legal system to hold police accountable for the everyday brutality and terror that's deployed against them by armed agents of the state. Already, Trump has stocked his cabinet with the wealthiest uh, in history, with the likes of uh, Steve Bannon, the former editor of Breitbart News, which has become a platform for the so-called alt-right, a term that attempts to rebrand misogynistic and white supremacist views. Um, and people like Jeff Sessions, who was once denied an um, appointment to serve as a judge because his views were considered too racist at the time. Between all this and Trump's proposed tax cuts for the rich and massive budget cuts to what remains of the social safety net in the US, there can be little doubt as to why Trump's election is so widely viewed as a turning back the clock to the decades before the most open displays of racism became unacceptable, or that Trump will wage further and, um, a further all-out assault on those demanding police accountability. On the other hand, I think Trump's election has raised questions for most Americans and probably around the world as well, not just about what Trump will actually do in practice or how to challenge it, um, but also how to explain the seeming disconnect between the fact that Trump was elected immediately after the first black president. Um, you know, how could the first black president in a country founded on slavery be followed by such a blatant bigot? And the dominant mainstream explanations for this tend to fall into one of two categories. So the first category, I would say, really comes from people who are um, democratic operatives. And it pretty much amounts to a blame game. In other words, the Democrats have managed to blame just about everyone for Trump's victory, uh, from FBI Director James Comey for continuing the investigation into Clinton's emails during the campaign, uh, to third-party voters who got, you know, 4% of the vote, 
um, no electoral college, um, to Russian interference in the elections. There's been a virtual obsession over that. Um, to sexism, um, sexism against Clinton, who was supposed to end sexism for women and break the glass ceiling. Yeah, I can see everyone here is confident in that too. <laughs> so in other words, they blamed everyone but themselves. Um, there's actually, I mean, this is, this is such a dominant narrative um, that even a week ago there was an article in The Ardian called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton, Sexism, Sanders, and Millennial Feminists. So millennials get blamed too, don't worry. They get blamed for everything. Um, really just claiming that millennials just don't understand, you know, um, the way that, uh, you know, feminism works, that you got to stand with your, your sisters in the corporate boardrooms. Um, and uh, a similar piece in The Intercept, you know, perhaps less mainstream, but a similar sentiment uh, was saying that really the issue um, that fundamentally voted, um, uh, motivated voters uh, for Trump was racism. And that gets me to the second explanation that tends to be dominant. So I won't dwell too much on the other explanation because I think probably in this room and generally speaking they're a little bit less important for these purposes. But the second explanation is important because it comes not just from the mainstream, um, but it's actually something that's gotten some currency on the left. And that's the idea that those who voted for Trump um, were primarily motivated by racism and the fact that a majority of white people who voted, including 54% of white women, voted for Trump. So according to this view, Trump's election is primarily a racist backlash against Obama's election, um, or even against the Black Lives Matter movement. So one version of this, also absurd, is the New York Times raising the notion that Clinton's downfall was because she focused too much on racism. Um, which is just such a blatant um, myth that thankfully I think Black Lives Matter activists played a central role in exposing during the election campaign. In fact, Clinton actually had to contend with her own legacy and her husband's that she supported of implementing the epidemic of mass incarceration, of exacerbating it beyond what it had already been in the 80s, um, and also of pointing out her own use of terms like super predators to describe young black youth in inner cities. Um, so there's that. Uh, but I think another version of this argument, interestingly in a country that just about never mentions the word class, suddenly comes into view around the white working class. The white working class apparently is the reason, the primary reason that Trump got into office, according to this view. Um, and I think that when I say this was reflected on the left as well, um, there's sort of a, you know, there's, there's not exactly racism against white people in the U.S., but the notion that the one group that it's, you're allowed to blame is, you know, hillbillies, is poor whites um, for anything. That was sort of the elite response to this, saying, you know, an elite who essentially wanted Clinton to carry out their neoliberal agenda overwhelmingly back in Clinton, even, you know, um, towards the, the, the right. Um, but um, I think that the way this comes about on the left, um, if people saw during the Women's March, there were a lot of critiques, primarily online, but honestly that reflected deeper debates, I think, within the left around the meaning of this election. And so there was a viral picture that was this uh, young black woman standing in front of three white women at the Women's March who were all wearing pussy hats, um, and her sign said, don't forget, white women voted for Trump. And so this was, um, you know, kind of uncritically accepted in a way. Um, and uh, I think, you know, exemplifies the need for us to actually get this question right, because it's really implications for people who really want to fight racism. I mean, you could say that when it comes from activists like her, 
um, or why it got a hearing. There's sort of a positive side to that in that you know, people were not as surprised by Trump's election in the sense that we live in a horribly racist country. It's no surprise in that sense. But I think that they accept the argument that white people as a whole, or white workers in particular, are irredeemably racist. And that raises a serious question for people who want to not only confront Trump, but confront racism in its totality, that we actually need to be able to understand this in a deeper way if we want to actually challenge racism in the, in the long run at its root. So ultimately, I want to argue that neither of these explanations is really accurate or complete for explaining Trump's election. Um, so, you know, for instance, the claim that Trump's election represented a united white backlash um, falls apart when you look at the actual breakdown of the election results. So, for example, Trump won enough votes to secure the election, but obviously he did not win the popular vote. In fact, he lost it by a historic margin. I think Clinton won um, nearly three million votes. Um, and when you look at the number that actually voted at all. You're talking about the two least popular candidates in history. You're talking about an incredibly disillusioned electorate for a variety of reasons. Trump's election was actually based on 25% of the vote, um, which is hardly exemplary of everyone's views, let alone the people who voted at all, let alone all white people. Um, the second issue, I think, is that there are several polls comparing um, you know, uh, the significant number of states where people who twice elected Obama had switched for Trump. Um, and I think it's hard to blame that exclusively on racism. And this is in a context where, you know, people are calling Obama a Muslim and saying he wasn't even born in the US. Um, those places actually were not galvanized to vote by, uh, for Clinton. Um, but Trump tapped into something that I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about later. Um, the third thing is that media pundits' explanation of what the so-called white working class is is really so vague and unhelpful in a way that I think it needs to be unpacked. Now, as Marxists, our definition of class has to do with your relationship to the means of production in a society where a minority profit off of the work of the majority. So your relation to that structure, whether you work or starve, um, defines whether you're working class, not your income. Um, but this definition was even vaguer than income. It was actually just, did you have a college degree or not? Um, so essentially lambasting people who were uneducated as being the only motivation for voting for Trump, as if there were no other factors in a country where people's living conditions had gotten so decimated for decades. And rightly or wrongly, thank you, I think that people um, were you know, looking for anything, anything that actually spoke to their um, their immiseration and you know whether you know however cynical and based on racist scapegoating Trump's you know make America great statement is it certainly is better than America's already great um, for some people. Um, so um, none of this, by the way, is to downplay the reality that enough white workers did vote for Trump. Um, and that this is actually a serious challenge for the left. I don't think that it would be useful in any way for us to diminish the need in a country where this has always been the Achilles heel um, of uh, the working class movement um, to downplay the need to challenge racism head on. But I think all of that taken collectively shows that it really, um, the explanations that have been given, that there's this united front of white workers or that white workers are inherently more racist um, is really, um, debunked. 
Um, what I do think needs to be grasped on the other hand is Trump's distinct unpopularity, that the massive resistance that's unfolded since day one so outnumbers the number of people who actually support Trump in any way whatsoever. Um, and part of that, I think, we can't really understand without the movements that came before. And this is where I want to talk about what is it that Black Lives Matter as a movement actually accomplished, um, because it's not insignificant for explaining the scale of the resistance that we're seeing today. And even you know its character as putting oppression and fighting oppression at its center. Um, so I think that when you look at the statistics right now, about 50% of Americans, up from 25% about five years ago, see racism as a major problem in the United States. So that's been, you know, that's a direct ideological impact of a movement where the, the, the nature of police brutality had virtually been invisible for decades, despite the fact that it was so egregious and so ongoing. Um, and you can't underestimate the impact of over two years of shutting down subway stations and bridges and intersections from California to New York, of nearly 200 protests on college campuses um, and disruptions of politicians, which actually is especially notable in an election season in the US where politics tends to sort of just be totally subsumed by the election. Um, uh, and it's, it's much more difficult to have actual activism taking place. Um, actually, during this election, there were 80 cities that protested in response uh, to the deaths of um, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, um, whose you know, deaths were caught on video. Um, one, you know, while his, um, his partner was literally filming in the car to make sure, she was live streaming it while it was happening to make sure that she and her four-year-old in the back of the car were safe while, um, you know, her partner was, was shot in the front seat. Uh, I want to, at the same time, kind of get to what the origins of this movement are, to get to what this seeming contradiction between Trump and Obama is, because I think on further you know, investigation, it's not as great a contradiction as it seems. I think Trump really rises out of sort of the same conditions, actually, that produced the Black Lives Matter movement in the first place, not just around um, an open bigot, you know, who actually is saying the most racist things, short of using the N-word, but the way that racism works in a systemic way. Um, which does not actually require someone to overtly state their own racism, but is deeply embedded in every institution throughout U.S. society. Um, and I think there's already been a tendency to mythologize the Obama years and what it meant. In fact, inherent in the arguments that people are making that white people were, you know, going, you know, making a backlash against Obama actually assumes that black people benefited under Obama, that people of color widely um, had their conditions alleviated or even advanced under Obama. And the reality that we have to grapple with is that exactly the opposite is the case. Um, so the reality is that 50 years since the civil rights movement, the gaps in wealth, life expectancy, unemployment, housing, health, and all quality of life measures have not improved for the vast majority of African Americans. And under Obama's presidency, in many cases, those conditions got dramatically worse. Um, so, you know, in terms of the epidemic of police killings, uh, black people under Obama were nine times more likely to be killed by the police than any other Americans, even though they represent only 13% of the U.S. population. And they were five times more likely to be unarmed um, it, during these killings than whites. Um, in the year 2015, American police killed an astounding 1,134 people, disproportionately black, 
Um, but as the uh, report for the Boston Globe noted, quote, the police in England and Wales fired their weapons a total of four times during the past two years. Four times, meaning in two years they discharged fewer bullets, policing 57 million people than were discharged into Michael Brown's body on one afternoon, end quote. Um, and it's not only the case that a vastly disproportionate number of people are bound to be black who are killed by police. It's also the case that in the overwhelming majority of these cases, the American quote unquote justice system will not hold the cops accountable for the people they kill. Um, and you know, at least part of why this movement I think happened when it did, not under you know the previous right-wing administration, but under Obama, actually lies in the disconnect between the hopes and expectations that were raised about what Obama's presidency as the first black president in a country founded on slavery would be, and the reality of what most people have faced. So obviously the death of Michael Brown and Eric Garner sort of why did it spark this outrage um, you know, across the country wasn't just about the particular egregiousness of those conditions, but because of their ubiquity, because they exemplified the utter inability of a black person to get justice from the so-called justice system, but also because police brutality is just the sharpest edge of racial oppression in a country where black life more broadly is devalued. Um, so that, I think, is what, what this movement has actually um, been about in terms of why the response has been so great. And then in terms of the system, I think you know, some of the things that are almost common sense now for a lot of people who came out of the movement is that it's not about individual racist cops or individual departments with a so-called bad police culture. It's not the case that policing has just gotten off track from some glorious past, which of course never existed. This is a force that was founded out of um, strike breakers and slave patrols in the US. So there's no history that is separate from the history of racism. Um, and policing. And it's not just a problem of police con uh, misconduct. If we're to understand what is actually being done, police are doing exactly what they're supposed to do in one of the most unequal societies, policing the conditions and the byproducts of neoliberalism, which were only further exacerbated under Obama's presidency. And this is not just to talk about Obama, it's to say this is a consensus, privatizing institutions, decimating any kind of um, social safety net. Um, you know, it, increasing the profits uh, and the inequality that exists in the society. This was something that both parties have been fundamentally committed to since at least the 70s and earlier. Um, so I wanted to uh, move forward a little bit and um, just talk about some of the challenges that exist now because I think that that's sort of the context we're working in that hasn't really changed. And uh, one thing you know, worth noting is that in the first two months of Trump's presidency, um, that is January and February, both of these months, there were more people killed by police in each of those months than any individual month in the previous year. And the fact of the matter is, from his endorsement by the Fraternal Order of Police um, to his claim that he'll pass a national Blue Lives Matter law, which is basically to make it a hate crime um, to even protest against police, um, 
basically we know that you know Trump's administration is going to come for us, um, is going to come for the people who have really unmasked what you know and really delegitimized on such a broad scale the criminal justice system. So that you know that represents a serious challenge for the movement. Of course, he's emboldened out-and-out out racists. There have been more hate crimes against people all over the country. In addition to the hate crimes laws, there have been laws that have been passed against even the very right to protest. And it actually dovetails not just with Black Lives Matter, but some of the movements that have been inspired or have had links with Black Lives Matter. There's a particular law um, that was in response to the Standing Rock protests that made it, uh, makes it um, basically um, illegal for protesters to stop a highway uh, or you know, to stop uh, traffic. And if a car hits them, during this, you know, illegal takeover of a highway, um, the person will be let off. Um, so this has not actually been passed, but this gives you a sense of what precedents are being set all around the country and what people have been emboldened to try to do given Trump's presidency. Another thing is for all the inaction of the Democrats, we can say that the movement when it was at its height did win some concessions and however critical we can be of these concessions. For instance, there's a tendency for them to constantly issue um, a report, you know, which tells us exactly what we already know. You know, um, we already know the extent of police brutality. We know it's disproportionately against black people. And the commission will come out to investigate the problem. So there are limits to that. But it tells you a lot that after this movement, those, uh, you know, even the Democrats were forced to enact those investigations. And now Jeff Sessions is seeking to overturn some of the few concessions that we've reached. So for instance, um, he's actually, looking right now to end the federal Department of Justice's investigations um, into places like Baltimore where Freddie Gray was killed and there were mass um, protests. So, you know, the very few things that we have actually gained, they're looking to beat back. I want to, I guess, talk a little bit about where the movement sort of left off because I think for all the ideological impacts that we've had, we can see how united the ruling class is in its desire and ability to crush these movements. And it's not like this is something new. It's something they did in the 60s. It's something that they've always done at the point where um, you know, capitalism's fault lines lie. And the truth is that every time the black movement in the US has been raised, because it's been such a linchpin of keeping capitalism going, of dividing the working class, of dividing any kind of unified challenge, um, not only to racism, but to the deeper inequality that is only possible because of the racism that exists in, throughout US society, it has raised bigger questions about that society for all people. And so they have always cracked down, particularly on these conditions, particularly on the people who are most likely to resist. But you can only do that so long before those people fight back. And so it is that much more important for those, um, those sectors to be that much more policed and marginalized. And I think that if you look at one of the strategies that the movement focused on at a certain point, it was called decentralized but coordinated. I think the extent to which the Black Lives Matter movement produced a layer of committed activists um, and organizations is really remarkable, especially given the decimation of the left. But I think it's also overstated. And I think that that strategy has come to its limits because the question in this period of you know, more people being killed by police, and yet there isn't the same response in the context of all these attacks on us one after the other. Um, and I think that 
we need to actually be as organized and as strategic and as embedded in the movements that are being raised in order to effectively challenge racism. It is still impossible to get a cop indicted, much less convicted in the United States. And we're going to need to actually raise our sights higher. But it also um, comes down to, I think, the biggest um, question, but also the hope that's been raised by this bigger resistance that I think we need to seize upon. And that's the fact that there is a greater recognition than there's ever been um, of the connections between these different struggles. It is impossible not to see the fact that immigrant rights activists are literally being dragged out of their homes, are literally being dragged out of their schools, are being put, having a target put on their backs and not people literally passing laws where you're not allowed to harbor you know, an undocumented person. How similar is that to the frickin' Fugitive Slave Act? It's a modern racist mechanism that's been built up over decades, and there is no way not to see the parallels of how the systems that have been built up specifically against black people have been exported and used against all activists to silence all dissent and to silence all oppressed people from fighting back. Um, and there's a greater recognition that our you know, feminism is incomplete unless it is intersectional. That is kind of the default politics, especially of young people in this moment. Um, but I think that we need to go even further, and that's where the question that anyone supported Trump, that anyone felt that there was a reason um, to accept or buy into his racist scapegoating is really a challenge that we're not going to, uh, uh, you know, overcome, not only without solidarity, which is critical, um, but by also pose, uh, connecting the uh, fight against racism to building an alternative society, to actually raising an alternative to those politics that actually addresses the genuine conditions um, of people's lives being decimated. There's right now, um, you know, disproportionate killings of black people in the US, but there's also more killings of white people than in any other country I mean, I think in, in 2015, 500 white people were killed. Um, there uh, you know, is currently an opioid crisis in the US where um, I think an Ohio morgue actually had to use um, uh, trailers as refrigerators because there were so many bodies of mostly white people drinking and drugging themselves to death because they feel they have absolutely no hope. There is a commonality between those conditions, whether it's a different type of oppression that they may not face, and that inequality, and that other type of oppression, that is a common link and a material basis for solidarity. And we need to point this out and be clear about it, that only if we overcome <laughs> the racism that's divided us in the, you know, we're, we're talking about a unity that I call a revolutionary unity. It's not the unity of Hillary Clinton. It's not the unity that um, ignores the differences between the different oppressions that we face, but does recognize that unless we fight for a society that is based on democracy, that is based on solidarity with the oppressed, that actually puts the fight against oppression at its center, we will not be able to win. That was Hayley Pesson speaking at the 2017 Annual Marxism Conference in Melbourne, Australia, over the Easter long weekend. She's a member of the International Socialist Organisation and involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's all we have time for on today's program. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation.
The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.